1: Oh yay! Oh yay! Oh yay! All persons having business before the Honorable the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to give their attention, for the court is now sitting.
2: The rule of law still exists on paper. There's still an FBI. There's still a DOJ, but they aren't being used for the legitimate purposes of even-handed justice.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. And we are well into month two of podcasting uh, from my home to yours. And from my home to yours, we hope you are well and taking good care. There's been a lot of legal news this week, much of it pouring out of the Supreme Court or more accurately, the the phones of various Supreme Court justices who really made history this week with telephonic real time arguments in the first of 10 argument sessions they have scheduled for the month of May. Ordinarily, arguments end in April. So we're going to talk later in the show with Mark Joseph Stern, who's been listening in with me at Slate, uh, in a bonus for our Slate Plus members. So do stay tuned or sign up so you can stay tuned for that. Friends, if you are not a Slate Plus member yet, I urge you to check it out. Quite candidly, these are just Really tough times. Media companies are struggling, and Slate is no exception. Really good journalists across this industry are getting laid off, getting furloughed, taking huge pay cuts. And I know money is tight, but you can, if you can, support Slate's vital coverage and our terrific writers and podcasters with a Slate Plus membership. You get ad-free access to all of our shows, exclusive members-only content, like our extra SCOTUS rundown with Mark Stern. So... Please go, if you can, to slate.com slash amicus plus to find out more. And really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. So we wanted to hear from veteran New York Times correspondent Linda Greenhouse this week, uh, both about arguments in the Little Sisters case and also just how weird it is to be listening in to these telephonic arguments after decades of having no such access. So we're going to chat with her about that in just a few minutes. but. First, some uh, big news that needs to be addressed on any show about the law and the rule of law. On Thursday night, the Justice Department announced it was withdrawing charges against the president's former national security adviser, Michael Flynn. He pleaded guilty in December 2017 for lying to the FBI. He cooperated with the Mueller probe for a time and then changed his mind, fired his lawyers, withdrew his plea. While his sentencing is still pending before a federal judge in D.C., the Justice Department announced on Thursday that, poof, they're dropping the case. Well, we're joined by Susan Hennessy. She is the executive editor of Lawfare and General Counsel of the Lawfare Institute. She's CNN's national security and legal analyst, and she's a Brookings fellow in national security law. Prior to joining Brookings, she was an attorney in the office of General Counsel of the NSA, and her most recent book is Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful. Office, co-authored with Ben Wittes, and a must-read to try to get your head around what is happening in the executive at this time. So Susan, such a joy to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So so will you just walk us through uh, the zigs and zags of Michael Flynn's uh, actions in the transition and what he pleaded guilty to in 2017?
2: Yeah, so this is a, a little bit of a, of a strange and winding tale of, of the world's briefest stint as national security advisor. Um, but essentially, the, the core of the issue here is that during the transition period, a uh, period of time in which the FBI was actively investigating uh, Russian and uh, Russian active measures campaign and whether or not there were any contacts with the Trump campaign at the time, um, Michael Flynn had a phone call with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, immediately following the Obama administration's announcement that it was imposing sanctions in retaliation for Russian interference in the 2016 election. And in this phone conversation, there's actually a number of phone conversations between Flynn and Kislyak, Flynn essentially says, don't don't respond. And the the implication of this is that there will be more favorable treatment when the new administration comes in. Uh, Kislyak, in fact, doesn't respond. The Russians decide not to retaliate uh, and sort of escalate in response to the sanctions. Um, The current United States government at the time is kind of scratching their heads. They were prepared for the Russians to retaliate. They want to know what happened. Uh, They want to know why this blowback didn't come. And so they start uh, investigating and they find this phone call between Flynn and Kislyak because, of course, the Russian ambassador is presumably being monitored. Uh, His phone calls are being monitored. Um, And so they go, uh, the FBI goes and actually interviews Michael Flynn to ask about this call. They already have the transcript, so they know what's on it. Um, And in the course of that interview, Michael Flynn lies. He says. That he didn't have, he didn't mention sanctions during this call at all, um, and it's a crime to lie to federal investigators. And so, uh, the fact that Michael Flynn has lied becomes the basis of uh, one his eventually being fired uh, by the president because he uh, also lies to the vice president of the United States and other members of the administration uh, about the con- about the substance of this phone call, um, and then eventually becomes the basis under which Michael Flynn is prosecuted. Uh, um, fast forward to December 2017, Michael Flynn pleads guilty, uh, admits that he lied, that he knew what he, he knew his statements were false at the time. Um, and then there's been this sort of prolonged period of cooperation. Um, over the past sort of six or eight months, uh, Michael Flynn has kind of changed his mind. He's attempted to withdraw his guilty plea. Uh, he suggested that there's been misconduct by the federal government. Um, in the past couple of weeks, the president of the United States has suggested he might pardon Michael Flynn. Um, And then Thursday evening, in sort of a a sort of surprise turn of events, uh, the Justice Department actually decided to drop charges against Michael Flynn entirely um, and essentially abandon the plea agreement. Um, It is, I think, an understatement to call it unusual for the Department of Justice to drop charges after somebody has already pled guilty to them. Um, And so that that leaves us to where we are now with sort of serious questions about um, why this course of Action was undertaken at the Department of Justice and, and what it means about sort of apolitical law enforcement moving forward. And, and, and I want
0: you to stop there for one second, because I, I think that for a lot of people, it's just, you know, six of one, half dozen of another. A lot of folks think, what's the difference between uh, if Trump had pardoned him or if uh, the DOJ
2: just decides to drop charges? But institutionally, it's a great big deal for the DOJ to step in here. It is significant, right? So there, there's been a question about whether or not Trump might pardon people like Flynn or Paul Manafort or Roger Stone. And um, I would argue that ha- it, were he to do so, that would be an abuse of, of his presidential office, an abuse of the pardon power. Um, but it would sort of trigger a separate set of questions uh, and potential checks and balances. And and it really is kind of the appropriate course of action. Um, what we've seen Bill Barr do actually a number of times is kind of short circuit that process. Um, so whenever where the president was suggesting he might um, pardon Roger Stone, uh, Bill Barr directed this sort of last-minute about-face for the Department of Justice, where they suddenly recommended a much lower sentence uh, in his case after he'd been convicted of charges. Here again, right as it seemed as though the president was prepared to pardon Michael Flynn, Bill Barr intervenes to have those charges dropped. And, you know, it, it might seem sort of insignificant because the outcome probably would have been the same either way. But it is significant, because what Bill Barr is doing is politicizing and departing from longstanding positions of the Department of Justice in ways that uh, will actually have significance on future cases, Um, you know, and raise really alarming questions about the uh, perception, and I think at this point, reality that the Department of Justice now functions as an organization that protects and defends the president's friends, family and and political cronies uh, and and targets his enemies. And and that, of course, is an incredibly alarming place, uh, you know, for our country to find itself in.
0: And you wrote in Lawfare on Thursday night, you make the point that one of the things that this uh, government brief, which is, I think you point out, signed only by one one attorney, uh, there uh, is a prosecutor who actually quietly, noisily walks off the case, leaving us to assume he disagreed with this judgment. But you describe it as a kind of who's who of blaming the James Comey FBI and everybody who are now familiar villains, you know, uh, Sally Yates, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, everyone's a bad guy. And it sort of crafts this now familiar story that there was a cabal of people uh, at the FBI who were not honest brokers, and they cooked up this whole process to entrap uh, Michael Flynn. And I think it's important for you to explain why it matters that Barr is going after the FBI, again, as an institutional matter, what that does to morale, what that does to public confidence in the FBI.
2: Yeah, there's sort of two suggestions within the government's brief. Um, and the first is, is, I think, the more substantive and alarming one. And essentially, the order of events is pretty complicated and convoluted. Um, but essentially, what uh, the Department of Justice is currently arguing is that at the time that the FBI interviewed Michael Flynn, there wasn't a properly predicated investigation. And so in order to have a, a predicated full investigation, the standard's relatively low. It's an articulable factual basis, that either there's a threat to national security or that a crime has been committed. And essentially, uh, what occurred here was a little bit of a bureaucratic sort of snafu or technicality. Um, there was a counterintelligence investigation, Crossfire Hurricane, we're all now well aware of it, um, that had been occurring from the summer of 2016, sort of investigating Russian active measures. This guy, George Papadopoulos, who had said that there was some indication with it the campaign, that the Russians had Hillary Clinton's email, the Bureau starts looking into that. And as they're looking into that, uh, these four individuals sort of pop up on the radar screen. Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, Paul Manafort, and Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn pops on the radar screen because he has some ties uh, with Russian financial uh, institutions, uh, and he's traveled to Russia. And the FBI looks into that. And by the time they get sort of to to November to the end of the year, they they find some sort of sketchy things about Flynn, but nothing that sort of puts him uh, makes him sort of a likely likely suspect for the the specific sort of con that they're looking into, and so they write this memo and they say, "Um, we didn't find any derogatory information. We don't think he's our guy. We should probably just close this." Um, but they actually don't file the paperwork to do so. Then fast forward to December and early January, and this phone call between Flynn and Kislyak pops up on the radar screen. This really significant new piece of information. And at that point, the FBI has to make a decision of what they do with it. Now uh, they decide that they don't want to pursue it just as sort of a narrow criminal issue related to the Logan Act. That's it's not really likely that he's going to be prosecuted under this sort of old law that's never been used before. Um, you know, but, but they do realize that there's a serious issue. They need to interview him um, and that it f- plainly falls within the predication of a counterintelligence investigation. There's just no question of that. And, and what they find out is that instead of having to actually formally reopen a counterintelligence investigation, they never bothered to close the last one. And so, great, they've saved themselves some paperwork. What DOJ is attempting to argue now is that somehow that technicality breaks the breaks a chain of causation or breaks the predication such that the interview in which Michael Flynn plainly lies, in which he plainly commits a crime, was somehow illegitimate and the substance of the lies wasn't material. Um, and, and, and that's just a little bit of sort of obfuscation, right? It's 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 taking some sort of bureaucratic technicalities and making it appear as though it's evidence of wrongdoing, um, when in fact, there's really no question that the FBI, it, it wasn't just proper to ask Michael Flynn what exactly was going on, why was he having this conversation, you know, but really the, the responsibility, the, the duty and obligation of the FBI to do so.
0: And I think it matters, again, for purposes of just <laughs> keeping... The story straight that the, the new um, pleading seems to
2: suggest that the lie doesn't really matter. Yeah, they take this bizarre position that Flynn's call with Kislyak was entirely appropriate. Um, and in order to understand how weird of a claim that is, we have to kind of go back to that period of time, right? So December 2016 and January 2017. This is the period of time in which Republicans are actually slamming Barack Obama for not going far enough. They say these sanctions aren't uh, aren't aren't harsh enough on Russia. Um, the FBI is aware of all these whirling questions about what the Russians had did, whether or not there are these contacts. And here comes the incoming national security advisor who has this bizarre conversation with the Russian ambassador. And then all of a sudden, the administration is lying about it. The press secretary is is lying about the substance of this call. The incoming vice president is lying. And that creates a real question. Is Michael Flynn freelancing? Is he making representations to the Russian ambassador that aren't consistent with the policies of the current or the incoming administration. Is he somehow carrying out a policy on behalf of the incoming administration? What's going on? And then the purpose of an interview is just to get to the bottom of what's going on. And so when people sort of suggest this was a perjury trap, so a perjury trap is when uh, the government attempts to interview someone for no investigative purpose whatsoever. There's not a real question about uh, that they're trying to get to the bottom of, but instead, they just want to get somebody to lie so they can use that as the basis of prosecution. But here, there are live questions, and whether or not Michael Flynn decides to say, hey, you know, yeah, I did this. The incoming president told me to do it. We have a new policy. So what if we're lying to the public? That's not really any of your business." Or if instead Michael Flynn says, I didn't talk about sanctions at all and sort of brazenly lies, that's really, really a different matter whenever you're trying to assess the national security risks, which is, of course, what a counterintelligence investigation is all about. So the sort of combination of factors and suggestion that poor Michael Flynn was somehow, you know, duped into uh, to lying to federal agents, uh, you know, it, it really just doesn't hold up. In, in a weird way, Susan, this feels like...
0: Michael Flynn is sort of a vestige of an earlier time, even in the Trump era, where if you lied uh, and you endangered national security in so doing by putting yourself in a compromise, p- potentially compromised situation, everyone agreed that was bad. And now we're in this brave new world where as long as you lie for Trump— You're okay. And in a strange way, it makes me almost nostalgic uh, for the good old days of 2017, where at least there was some agreement across the ideological spectrum that the Justice Department wasn't going to bend over backwards to protect Trump's friends for lying for him. Am I too cynical?
2: I don't think it's too cynical. Look, I, I think there are, you know, reasonable minds can believe that DOJ and the FBI leans too hard on 1001 violations in order to obtain leverage. You can you can have lots of sort of good faith criticisms about the sort of investigative and, and prosecutorial processes that occur every day. The bottom line, though, is that there's no question that Michael Flynn is getting special and different treatments because he is a political ally, of the president and as soon as we uh, we start sort of accepting and tolerating this notion that uh, the law is different depending on your uh, sort of status of favor with the individuals in power. Um, you know, that not just begins, but in some cases sort of completes a process of constitutional rot whereby our institutions are formally still standing. The rule of law still exists on paper. There's still an FBI. They're still a DOJ, but they aren't being used for the legitimate purposes of even-handed justice and instead are being used of tools of of favor and protection or punishment and and persecution based on sort of political standing. And, um, you know, that is antithetical to sort of core American values and and core values of democracy. Susan,
0: last question before we let you go. Um, You pointed out in your Lawfare piece on Thursday night that in his interview with CBS on Thursday night, Barr defended his decision. Here he is kind of chuckling that, well, you know, nobody has a sense of justice, but history is written by the winners.
1: Nowadays, uh, these partisan feelings are so strong that people have lost any sense of justice.
0: When history looks
3: back on this decision, how do you think it will be written?
1: Well, history's written by the winners, so it largely depends on, on <laughs> uh, who's writing the history.
0: And I wonder if you can just help folks who are trying to locate whether this is a sort of one or a 10 on the outrage scale, what it means when Barr is sort of, uh, as you
2: say, kind of rewriting history because he thinks he's the victor. I think there's two ways to approach it. So the idea that Michael Flynn isn't rotting in jail for many, many years, that's not a source for me personally of, of great outrage. You know, this was a serious offense. But, you know, had a judge decided to sort of ignore his more recent shenanigans and, and you know, give him probation or sort of let him off with a wrist slap, that wouldn't be a, an egregious miscarriage of justice. Um, the, the part that is a 10, that's like a blazing red alarm, everybody should be freaking out is the idea of the attorney general acting as the political henchman of the president of the United States. And that is incredibly alarming. And we've seen Bill Barr carry out a systematic campaign to try and undermine and discredit the Mueller investigation. Interventions in the Stone sentencing, the John Durham review, uh, the review of Michael Flynn's uh, case now the, the decision to drop Flynn's charges. It's all about attempting to not write history, but rewrite history to create this sort of alternate reality by which the president of the United States didn't do anything wrong and this horrible deep state in the government was just out to get him from the beginning. And so, you know, I, I think it was a little chilling to hear Bill Barr sort of laugh as he makes this observation of, well, history is written by the winners because he, he clearly recognizes that at this moment, He is the victor and and he intends to rewrite history. And and the problem is whenever you have uh, a law enforcement entity that is divorced from the truth uh, and instead sort of in pursuit solely of, of, uh, you know, the interests of those in power, um, you know, you're in an incredibly, incredibly disturbing situation because the first step might be the protection of the president's friends. But when you look at autocracies across the world, the final step is always the prosecution and persecution of the president's enemies. Um, And and that's something, you know, I, I think any reasonable person should just be incredibly alarmed about. Susan Hennessy
0: is executive editor of Lawfare and general counsel of the Lawfare Institute. She's a Brookings fellow in national security law. And her new book with Ben Wittes is Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. Susan, uh, incredibly, incredibly important work. Thank you so, so much for joining
2: us today. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court.
0: History was made this week with the gaveling in of the first ever telephonic oral argument session at the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: We'll hear argument this morning in case 1946. The United States Patent and Trademark Office versus Booking.com. Ms. Ross?
0: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My guest to talk about this week at the Supreme Court needs no introduction to anyone at all who's watched the Supreme Court, at least in my lifetime. Linda Greenhouse was the New York Times Supreme Court correspondent for almost three decades, for which she won a Pulitzer Prize and myriad other prizes and honorary degrees. Linda is currently the Knight Distinguished Journalist in Residence and the Joseph M. Goldstein Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School. Her column on the Supreme Court appears in the New York Times on alternating Thursdays. And her most recent book, which is absolutely lovely, is called Just a Journalist on the Press, Life and the Spaces Between a Memoir. So Linda, it's been a while since we've had you on the show. Wonderful to have you. Welcome back. Oh, happy to be here, Dahlia. And of course, I read
3: your columns all the time, even though I, I don't see you.
0: Well, it's good to, Linda and I are doing this on Zoom, so we get to see each other's faces, which is nice, because in all the years that we covered the court together, I saw the back of her head from the cheap seats. (laughs) Um, Linda, I want to, I guess I want to start by asking you how uh, you feel about these real-time telephonic oral arguments. This is historic in some sense. Well, you know, at first I was very skeptical about
3: all the hype over this because I thought, you know, for heaven's sakes, the court has put up its audio on its website every Friday for several years now. And, you know, it's not as if the public has never been able to hear the justice's voices, but I'm gonna take that back because actually it was fascinating. And it is a very different kind of argument that brings out a different dynamic by the court. I'll almost be sorry when the court, assuming any of us ever get back to normal life, when the court get, gets back to normal life, um, because we'll, we'll miss a kind of a coherence in a way that uh, the telephonic argument enables, but we can, I'm sure you, I'm sure you have your thoughts on that too.
0: Well, I do. And I, and I, you know, I, I was going to sort of pause it for you, I, I think, let's at least agree that any transparency is good transparency. I mean, I think anything that that gives more people the ability to hear more argument at home in real time has to be good. But then I think there is this kind of bickering going on among court watchers, because if you are used to the way arguments used to be, it's not just, oh, now we can listen in on the phone. It's that the whole format has really changed. And instead of this kind of free-ranging argument. We now have nine separate colloquies. It's very different in a lot of ways. And I know there are Lyle Denniston has been saying he doesn't like it. Garrett Epps says he loves it. Mark Stern and I, I think, are somewhere in the middle (laughs) saying we like the idea of transparency, but maybe it's not terrific that the chief justice has so much control over arguments. What's your feeling about not the sort of optics of it, but the actual ways in which the arguments themselves are, are fundamentally different in some ways.
3: Yeah, well, that's an interesting observation, Dahlia, that the chief justice has so much control. Because, of course, ordinarily, people don't realize that the office of the chief justice actually doesn't give the chief justice as much control over the court, as I think many people assume, you know, at the end of the day, he's one vote out of nine. But here, as you suggest, because they're not seeing each other. They're all in their nine separate places. In fact, Justice Ginsburg uh, for the end of the week was asking her questions from Johns Hopkins Hospital from which she's now mercifully been released and sent home. Uh, he's actually the, the kind of traffic cop and arguments are supposed to last an hour. One thing that's quite fascinating is that they all go longer now, uh, but he will, allow each justice to ask a question, maybe two questions, maybe a follow-up question or two, and then he'll just interrupt. And whether he's interrupting the lawyer or, or one of his colleagues, he'll just say, thank you counsel, and he'll go on to the next justice. And so uh, that is startling in part because those of us who've watched him over the years, he's, he himself is not an active questioner on the bench and many, many minutes in arguments can go by without hearing his voice. It's not that he's a passive person. He's not. That's not what I'm suggesting. But uh, he made a career arguing before the Supreme Court, and I think he has a healthy respect for allowing the lawyers to make their case. And so he doesn't jump in. He doesn't interrupt. He will ask very smart, pointed questions, but he will wait his turn. And now he's very obviously in charge.
0: And maybe related to that, Linda, I think one of the things that court insiders are saying, and again, I I, I a little bit reserve judgment on this because I'm not sure how it's shaking out, but that you don't get a kind of line. There's no through line that you don't have the opportunity to kind of pursue a question because the next justice may simply drop the question and and you can't kind of fully explore issues of concern because if the person who chronologically goes after you in order of seniority drops it it's dropped and i wonder if you have some sense that this kind of peripatetic, you know, now now it's Kagan's turn, and she's trying to harken back to something that happened 25 minutes ago, where ordinarily she would jump in immediately, whether that shapes argument at all, the, the, the lack of a sort of very, very clear through line. Well, of course, in the ordinary argument, there's
3: also not a clear through line, because justices will jump in and turn the argument in another direction. So I think here, For instance, in the Little Sisters argument on Wednesday, Justice Kavanaugh, of course, being the junior justice came at the end. And he obviously, at least it seemed obvious to me, had been taking notes. And so he framed his question by saying, well, as Justice Kagan, Justice Alito, Justice this, Justice that said, and he kind of cycled back to a theme that had come earlier. And I think, you know, maybe in a real argument, he wouldn't have gotten a chance to weigh in at all. So, um, so that's. I, I mean, I see the the problem that you're framing, but I actually think there's a problem the other way too. So, um, you know, I think it's 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 actually pretty cool.
0: It's incredibly cool, and I guess this is where we have to acknowledge the fact that Justice Clarence Thomas has probably spoken more this week uh, than certainly. I think I could say across my two-decade career uh, that he is absolutely enthusiastically embracing this style and form in a way that we've never seen before. And I wonder if you think that has any impact. Well, I think it does, actually. I think that's clear from some of the arguments
3: this week. I mean, going into this, I was thinking to myself, gee, that's going to be kind of awkward when the chief justice turns to Justice Thomas, who is the senior associate justice, so he would come right after the chief and say, Justice Thomas, and there'd be like blank. But no, I mean, uh, Justice Thomas uh, behaved on the bench, as I gather, he actually behaves in the justices' conference, that is to say, a full and well-prepared participant. And he's got his talking points, and that's what came through. and I mean, for instance, um, in the little sister's argument, where he starts asking about uh, uh, standing and and um, and nationwide injunctions and things that are, you know, somewhat ancillary to the case, but yet require answers, and and uh, other people had to pick up on that. So it was really a window into the the hidden Clarence
0: Thomas that the public doesn't see, but that his colleagues definitely do. And we can't um, leave the sort of general theatrics of the week without briefly touching on Justice Ginsburg calling in from the hospital. I think, um, as you noted, it was a, a gallstone issue. She's home. Uh, But it was one of those moments that makes us realize yet again that we're all kind of sitting around on tenderhooks watching her health in a way that really raises questions about, is this the best possible way uh, to do justice in America? I wonder if um, you had the same 500 panicky phone calls on Tuesday night that I had.
3: Uh, Yes, I did. I did. And of course, I didn't know anything. Uh, so, yeah, I was just waiting for the next shoe to drop like everybody else.
0: So so let's talk about the Little Sisters case, because I think, I guess I want to say my personal sort of axe to grind here is I actually think this is a, a very consequential case. And I always get a little freaked out that these contraception cases get only a tiny fraction of the attention that the straight-up abortion cases get, and that, you know, the the interest in June Medical as compared to this was exponentially high. And I actually think these, these sort of religious objector cases, maybe because they're complicated or maybe because there's just so much else going on, but they just don't seem to break through, even though in some ways I think they're just unbelievably salient and meaningful. Do you, do you have some sense of why these contraception mandate cases post Hobby Lobby just don't seem to garner a lot of public interest?
3: Well, I think, I mean, at first, I totally agree with you. Th- these are really important cases, and they really go to the nature of civil society, as I understand it, which is that, you know, the default mode is we all live by the same rules. We all undertake the same obligations, and if there's going to be an exception to that, uh, you know, if there's going to be a conscientious objection to the draft or, or whatever, it, it's very carefully defined and very carefully administrated. Administered, and and that's an important thing. So why don't these get the heft that the abortion cases get? Well, I think it's because you know, you've got an abortion case, and are women gonna have the right to terminate a pregnancy or not? Or, Or what are the obstacles to women being able to affect their constitutional right to control their reproductive lives? That's, you know, you can kind of understand that right on the surface. These go to something a little bit more elusive, and the religious right has been absolutely brilliant in framing a narrative that I believe is not an honest narrative, that, you know, oh my God, the nasty Obama administration is trying to force the little sisters, the little sisters of the poor to use birth control. Now, of course, that's totally meretricious. The little sisters of the poor are, it's an order of nuns, they run nursing homes. If you go on their website, they're an equal opportunity employer. You don't have to be a member of their order or a member of their faith to work there and or to be a patient in their nursing home. So what this case has to do with is do they, as employers, have the ability to opt out of providing to their, let's assume, secular workforce the same rights that federal law requires employers to provide for everybody else? And that's what it comes down to. But They have so captured the narrative. Now, there were many, many plaintiffs originally in this case uh, with all kinds of anodyne names, but very cleverly, uh, the people representing the Little Sisters, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is a brilliant religious right litigating organization with very, very smart people working there, have somehow managed to make, this is a case about the little sisters. It's not a case about the little sisters. They're interveners in this case. And actually, the plaintiff in this case is the state of Pennsylvania, joined by the state of New Jersey, saying we object to this opt out because there's going to be more pregnancies. There's going to be more, uh, you know, Medicaid services required uh, for people who have to carry their pregnancies to term and have babies, and we're going to have to pay more. So we have standing, we're the states, we don't like this. Uh, It's really not about the nuns and nobody's forcing the nuns to use birth control.
0: Right. And I I, I think that's important. I I wrote that up in my piece because I I called uh, almost everyone I knew and said, is there any set of facts under which the little sisters who are on the church plan, right? They're never going, even if if they lost this case, whatever that means, as you said, they're interveners, they're never going to have to themselves uh, do the thing that they're they're saying they don't want to do, right? Well, that's right,
3: And and we should be specific about the thing they're saying they don't want to do. What they don't want to do is anything, because the way the current accommodation works is, if you're a religious objector and you feel that by doing anything to enable your employees to receive free contraception, uh, you would be complicit in the sin of contraception. Okay. The government, the Obama administration, was willing to accept that as a as a position, and so they said, okay, you don't have to do anything. You can do absolutely nothing, and it will fall to the insurance, your insurer, or ultimately the government, uh, to pay for this service as long as the employees can receive the contraception coverage as part of their ordinary health plan. You don't have to pay for it you don't have to even officially opt out, you don't have to sign a form, you don't have to ask us to do it. We'll do it, but it has to be seamless. We don't have to send them out into the marketplace to find their own insurance because the law provides that they are entitled to this insurance. So it's it's a refusal to accommodate at all. It's not, we don't like your accommodation, we feel we deserve another accommodation. No, we deserve a total exemption
0: and that's what's really on the table. So, so, so let's back this up for for listeners who maybe haven't followed every twist and turn since Hobby Lobby, and and just sort of lay out how we got here. Um, as you said, uh, when uh, the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was a guarantee of comprehensive con- contraceptive care that would be covered by your employer. Um, there were a bunch of exemptions for churches and. Uh, religious universities and hospitals uh hobby lobby at the time said we want that too we want an exemption too in the hobby lobby opinion written by sam alito uh the kind of i think the gravamen of of the opinion was look if you can give this accommodation to churches you can certainly give it to these for profit uh uh small corporations like hobby lobby and the the green Families cabinet company and that's where we were. And then, as you say, Zubit comes along in 2016. And this was a group saying, okay, but we don't want the accommodation uh, that we were given in Hobby Lobby. We don't want to self-certify. We want to just not be in any way in this kind of causal chain wherein at the end of the day, our employees get contraceptive care covered. Is that a fair representation of what where we are? Yes. And let me say something
3: about the argument. So Justice Alito, who, as you say, wrote Hobby Lobby, has a line of questioning to the Pennsylvania lawyer. The Third Circuit, by the way, had, had invalidated the Trump rule that that provides the religious exemption. And also, we haven't even gotten into this, provides a moral, moral, moral <laughs> objection. Justice Alito says to the lawyer, what's wrong with the Third Circuit? Didn't they read Hobby Lobby? meaning this is covered by Hobby Lobby. Now it's not, I hate to say that Justice Alito asked a dishonest question, but he well knew because he wrote the opinion in Hobby Lobby that what Hobby Lobby was seeking was an accommodation, not a a total opt-out. So when he said to the Pennsylvania lawyer, didn't the Third Circuit read my opinion in Hobby Lobby? Yes, they did. And they found that what's being requested here
0: is not covered by Hobby Lobby. It's very different. It's much more extreme, actually. So, so we do have to get into this sort of administrative procedure part of the case, which is, as you said, uh, Donald Trump announces we're going to be much more expansive. We're going to give opt-outs to everyone who has a religious objection. And they put together a rule that, as you say, is far broader uh, than anything we'd seen before, where they say now any employer who has a religious objection to contraception can opt out. And also this, as you say, mysterious language about also, if you have a quote-unquote moral objection, uh, uh, now you can be exempted. And uh, part of this case, and I think only Elena Kagan was really deeply excited about it, is this issue of did they go through the fair sort of, you know, notice and and uh, uh, all the processes for a, a rulemaking change. Um, but it is kind of important because I think in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the law of Trump, so often they lose because when they go ahead and make rules, they do it kind of badly and fitfully and without jumping through the correct hoops. So that is a part of this case. And that's certainly the part of this case uh, on which the lower courts were emphatic, that they just didn't do this correctly. They tried to fix it after. Right.
3: Yes. Justice Kagan raised the Administrative Procedure Act, and Justice Breyer did also, Um, and they're often in league uh, with each other trying to find some off-ramp that the court could avail itself of uh, and, and not kind of plunge into the deep hole that the court will find itself in if they actually would uphold a moral objection. I mean, that really is the end of civil society as I understand it. So it's possible that the procedural stuff could attract, Five votes, but you know, I mean, there's such an appetite among the conservatives to get to the heart of this thing, uh, because they failed to do that in the case that you mentioned in 2016 in Zubik, because Justice Scalia had died, and the court was obviously split four to four. Although, let me interrupt myself early in the argument the chief justice said, you know, I never understood the issue in Zubik. So
1: if you had a situation where the certification was not necessary, in other words, uh, uh, the, the government finds out that the employees do not have contraceptive coverage through some other means, um, and you do not have the hijacking problem that you refer to uh, because the insurance cover would not provide uh, the, the services through the Little Sisters plan but could provide them directly uh, to the employees, uh, that why isn't that uh, sort of accommodation sufficient? I, I didn't understand the problem at the time of Zubik, and I'm not sure I understand it now. Which is pretty interesting.
3: And I think what he was trying to say was, I don't really understand the nature of the objection made by these religious employers. And can you please explain to me how that ties into what we did in Hobby Lobby. Uh, so it's possible that the chief on the merits thinks that what's being requested here is actually a step too far. That's what we're, That's one fascinating thing that we're going to find out here.
0: I had the exact same impression, Linda, that uh, here's Chief Justice Roberts right out the chute, Noel Francisco opening uh, his presentation to the court. He's the Solicitor General for the Trump administration, arguing on in favor of these exemptions. And Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, under this RIFRA Religious Freedom Restoration Act analysis, immediately says, wait, 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 I don't understand. It seems that the exemptions go way further than what the Little Sisters needed. Uh, let's have a listen.
1: Um, I wonder why it doesn't sweep uh, too broadly. It is designed to address the concerns about self certification um uh and uh, what the little sisters call the hijacking of their plan but the ex- rifra exemption reaches uh, far beyond that uh in other words uh not everybody who seeks the uh, uh protection from coverage has those same objections so i wonder if uh, your reliance on rifra uh is too broad
0: and my thinking is, as it always is, you never know with the chief justice. You're, you hesitate to read too much into his questioning. But it does look a little bit as though this is that <laughs> John Roberts swing justice that we're starting to get used to in the new era.
3: No, I, I, I agree with you, Dalia. It, it was It was very striking. And I also agree with you. He's one of the harder justices to read from the questions he asked from the bench because... Uh, sometimes he likes to play devil's advocate, sometimes he just likes to do something that is really a purpose of oral argument, which is to press the lawyer to the extreme of the lawyer's position, because the court always has to have in mind, okay, if we buy what this lawyer is selling, what's the next case? So, you know, it, it, it can have something other than signaling his own discomfort with the argument. But on the other hand, he sounded rather uncomfortable.
0: And and that sort of leads me to uh, Justice Ginsburg, who over and over, I think three separate times, said some version of, dude, (laughs) the ACA says this is covered and that women aren't supposed to be scrounging around, uh, you know, in the markets trying to find their own coverage. And Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, kind of blithely said, oh, well, you know, somewhere between 75,000 and 125,000 women just won't be able to get contraception. But it was interesting. I think both Justice Ginsburg and later Sonia Sotomayor were really, I think, somewhat miffed at how cavalierly he dismissed the interest of, as you said, these third party non religious adherents who are going to bear the burden of the religious adherents' faith, right?
3: Well, if we go back to Hobby Lobby, Justice Alito's majority opinion had a statement in Hobby Lobby that said, no woman will be deprived of her ability to get no-cost contraception because of this opinion. He said that because he was dealing with an accommodation and under the Obama administration accommodation that was at issue in Hobby Lobby, if the employer didn't wanna pay, the insurer or the government would pay. Now, that has proven to be an empty promise because in fact, uh, women who work for these companies or women who go to uh, religious colleges that choose not to include contraception in their student health plan and so on are not getting the coverage. They are not getting the coverage. So, Justice Ginsburg had written the dissenting opinion in Hobby Lobby, uh, raising this issue and uh, her 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 intervention in the argument on Wednesday. Uh, was interesting. It was, I have to say, it wasn't typical RBG because she really didn't have the kind of uh, very much on-point question for the advocates. Instead, she kind of gave a little speech uh, saying, your position is throwing women to the winds and, you know, basically I've been telling you this and it's still happening. Instead, you are shifting the employer's religious beliefs, the cost of that, onto these employees who do not share those religious beliefs. And I did not understand Riffer to authorize
1: harm to other people,
0: which is evident here. that The, the women end up getting nothing. They, they are required to do just what
1: Congress didn't want.
3: She didn't actually frame a question. So that the Chief Justice had to say, I think it was to Solicitor General Francisco.
1: General Francisco, could you respond?
3: Would you like to respond to that? Because it actually wasn't a question. But uh, and obviously we know where she's coming from on this. And and um, she was very passionate. Uh, and, and she did not get a satisfactory answer, as you say.
0: The last little clip I wanted to play for you, Linda, because I, I actually thought it was very powerful, was Sonia Sotomayor trying to press on this notion in a a colloquy with Paul Clement, again, representing the Little Sisters, that if an employer, if we had a COVID-19 vaccine and an employer just had religious objections, would they be able to get an exemption similar to the one that you are fighting for, for the Little Sisters?
1: Mr. Clement, assume that the government tomorrow passes a law that says Every insurance company must reimburse every policyholder they have for COVID-19 vaccine. They say nothing about whether it's in your policy or not. If someone has a religious objection, they say they can be exempted from it. But you, insurance carrier, must pay for anyone who submits, who has a policy with you, for anyone who submits for a COVID-19 vaccine. Can the employer object to pay to that policy? So just to sort of my I think the answer is no. And if I'd like to explain kind of how I would work through that. Mr. Clement, exactly the same rules that apply here to contraceptives.
0: I wonder what you made of um, Paul Clement's answer, Linda, that maybe there just is a greater government interest in getting the vaccine out.
3: Paul Clement seemed to be caught a little bit flat-footed by a hypothetical that should not actually have surprised him. I mean, it was a really good hypothetical, but Mm -hmm. one that he might well have anticipated. And he was scrambling a little bit, but obviously the answer would be, even if you assume that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act puts a heavy burden on the government to justify anything that would seem to go against somebody's religious preference. There's a compelling state interest in knocking out this virus. And so, of course, the government would prevail. I mean, there's not the slightest doubt about it. He eventually, you know, I think came to that, but it took him too long. And that showed how deeply in he is to his, his client's commitment to, um, you know, hey, don't tell us. What we have to do, and I want to mention one other thing about the argument that uh, that really startled me, and it it came from Justice Gorsuch, not surprisingly, when he says to um, the Pennsylvania lawyer, "Well, uh, if there's so much discretion given to the health, uh, the the agency within HHS." that was charged by the Affordable Care Act itself with determining what were the essential services that employers had to provide. If there's so much discretion given to them and they came up with contraception, maybe that's an undue delegation. Now, for our listeners, for whom that's not um, a red flag kind of code word, the notion that Congress gives too much authority to the administrative agencies, let's say the administrative state, uh, goes back to the New Deal. And the last time anything has been struck down as an undue delegation was 1935, actually. Uh, Last year, there was a case presented to the court that would have allowed them to revive the undue delegation analysis. And it came within a hair's breadth of, of prevailing, only Justice Kavanaugh was not participating in that particular case. And Justice Alito wrote a brief concurring opinion saying, I would go there, I would go to undue delegation, but this isn't the right case and we don't have a fifth vote because Justice Kavanaugh wasn't on the court at the time of the argument. Uh, So for Justice Gorsuch to raise that within the framework of this argument was, truly surprising and i don't think it was insignificant.
0: Yeah, i was going to i was going to ask you about this sort of interplay between, you know, the the claims that Noel Francisco was making about, you know, agencies have all this power and authority to do what they want and if an agency can, you know, create exemptions, they can, you know, also create more exemptions and they can do whatever they want and it did seem to fly in the face of this attack on the administrative agencies that we're really seeing, not just with this non-delegation analysis, but just generally this very, very increasingly loud drumbeat that agencies should be more or less eviscerated. And I was also struck by that as it was this sort of through note at the bottom (laughs) of the argument that unless you were listening really carefully, you maybe didn't catch.
3: That's right. And of course, the Conservatives are a little bit stuck. They've got to thread a, a, a needle here because they want to say that the agency here had a lot of authority to create all these exemptions. But yet uh, they have the administrative state in their sights, and the undue delegation doctrine is a potent weapon to mm-hmm. take down the administrative state. So, somewhere in between, you know, we had a lot of delegation here and we love it. But actually, we don't like a lot of delegation because we don't like administrative agencies. It's going to be absolutely fascinating what they do with that and where that goes.
0: So before I let you go, Linda, I guess the last thing I really want to Flag is, and I think you raised this, that it certainly looked as though Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer, maybe the chief justice a little bit, was maybe working their way towards some consensus that looked a little Zubicky, right? It looked a little bit like what we saw in 2016, where maybe there's a way to not jump squarely into this issue of, you know, this ongoing clash between religious liberty and freedom on the one hand and just, you know, basic uh, civil laws <laughs> on the other, and that maybe the court just kicks this away and says under this Administrative Procedure Act, you know, this just wasn't, this rule change wasn't appropriate, and they don't fuss with the the line post Hobby Lobby. They don't fuss with deep uh, uh, changes to how we think about uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I- is that I guess I'm saying in the context of a huge term and we have so many other, you know, Title Seven and, and June Medical and these uh, financial records cases. I mean, this is a monster term. Do you think that the court is going to do a little bit? Some version of what they did in Zubik, which is just wait on the big, big issues, knowing that it's coming back in a year and two years and just do something sort of fiddly in the in the middle to make this go away for now
3: well, i'd like to be able to think that I mean I guess maybe one thing that's possible that the moral opt out the moral exemption, is sitting there i mean it 's fully half of the case, although it didn't get you know anywhere near half of the argument. I mean, they've got to get rid of that. There's no basis for that. There's no findings. There's no, I mean, good grief. If, you know, I don't like birth control and I'm an employer of thousands of people and, you know, too bad for them. I'm sorry. So, I mean, that's not covered by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's not covered by anything. It's it's absolute pure defiance of the will of Congress in having passed this law that's been upheld twice by the Supreme Court. So... If there are five votes to uphold that, uh, we're in even worse trouble than than you and I think we are. (laughs) Uh, You know, whether they'll find an Administrative Procedure Act, opt out, um, do we count to five on that? It's possible. It's possible. But, um, boy, there'd be a lot of blood on the floor if that's that's the way it turns out. And, of course, one thing we haven't mentioned, I mean, here they're hearing arguments into mid-May. Usually they hear arguments... Toward the not quite end of April, and usually they finish their term in the closing days of June. I don't see how, because of the big cases coming up next week—the Trump financial records cases and the big another big relation case. Are, Dahlia, do you think they're going to get out by Labor Day?
0: Uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure out how these all, particularly because they all of these cases are thorny and hard, and we've got a bunch uh, that are thorny and hard that we're still waiting on. So I, I I think the term, I don't know, I think the term goes, and we haven't talked about the fact that they kicked the Affordable Care Act case to next, uh, to next term, which means that, uh, do they just go straight from ending abortion into ending the Affordable Care Act? <laughs> I, I think it's, you're right, there's a huge log jam. And I don't know how. It's certainly not done the end of June. And I guess nobody's traveling anyway. So maybe they sit at home and flush their toilets and, you know, get through when they get through in mid-August. It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, you and I have nothing else to do, right? Exactly. What else? You know, I'm not going any place. We'll just sit in my basement and read uh, opinions through August. Um, I think Blood on the Floor is a a very fittingly Shakespearean uh, Act 5, Scene 5 (laughs) place to to leave uh, us today, Linda. Uh, Linda was the New York Times. Supreme Court correspondent for almost three decades, uh, for which she won a Pulitzer Prize and myriad other awards. Right now, she is the Knight Distinguished Journalist in Residence and Joseph M. Goldstein Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School. And you can always find her column on alternate Thursdays about the Supreme Court uh, in the New York Times. Linda, it is good to see your face. It is great to hear your voice. And I know (laughs) that it is just not easy doing this uh, from home. So thank you very, very much for being with us. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Dahlia. I always enjoy talking to you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so very much, as ever, for listening. And thank you so much for your continued letters and questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Gabriel Roth is an editorial director of Slate Podcasts and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in 2 short weeks. Hang on in.